a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could be a part of our growing audience of non, non-thinkers. No, let's try wrong thinkers. I, I was going to say non-conformists and wrong thinkers. It kind of came out wrong. So yeah, non-thinkers, welcome. You're welcome here as well. <laughs> Just sit back and allow me to fill your head with all kinds of dangerous nonsense. I'm sure that's how it seems to some people, but uh, but hopefully you understand. Everything that uh, that I share with you on this program is intended not so much to make you think, wow, Brian's got all the answers, because I clearly don't. It's more about there are, there are alternative ways of seeing what's going on around us. There are different vantage points, if you will, that uh, allow us to see things in a way that don't necessarily fit someone else's agenda. That is the essence of wrong think. It's thinking for yourself. It's asserting your autonomy where you need to, and in some cases saying, not just no, but hell no, when someone is offering you a narrative that is uh, calculated to keep you either uh, misled or otherwise uh, with a distorted view of what's happening. But but rest assured, I'm putting the responsibility for deciding what you think and, and, and holding your worldview. That's on your shoulders. So I can't make that decision for you. I wouldn't want to take that responsibility for you. I'm not even telling you, and here's the action that you have to take. All I'm trying to do, do is get the thought process going, and if anything else, give encouragement and uh, and maybe a shot of courage to those who dare to uh, stand up and, and think and speak against the prevailing narrative, because uh, heavens knows it's not easy. It always comes at a price. And apparently it's been that way for pretty much all of human history. Sometimes we just need a reminder. Speaking of history, let's take a moment to talk about how so many Americans became misled and misinformed about our nation's history. Jared Stepman has a remarkable piece on intellectualtakeout.org, and he says it's a radical historian by the name of Howard Zinn who is responsible for a lot of the distorted narrative that's actually driving so much of today's unrest here in America. Jared says the war on history is about overturning America's constitutional system. So says Mary Graybar, a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute and author of the book Debunking Howard Zinn, exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America. Now, if you don't know much about Zinn, welcome to the club. I obviously have have not uh, read any of his works or been exposed to to much of his uh, his mentality or his worldview, other than uh, through through various essays of people pointing out this is what Zinn taught. So I can't say that I, I can't say that I have given him a, a, a deep study on my own. But uh, listen to this article, maybe check it out for yourself if it's something that matters deeply to you. But it sounds like this was a guy who definitely had a uh, an agenda of revising American history. I mean, it's one thing to correct the narrative or to add depth and breadth to it. This sounds like no, no, no. Let's just uh, let's make it 
Let's make it a, a whole new narrative, and, and, and furthermore, we'll make it one that you have to believe. You know, you can't opt out of this one. Jarrett Stepman says, Zinn was a radical historian whose book, A People's History of the United States, has been, wild, has been widely influential since its first publication in 1980. Graybar spoke at a Heritage Foundation event in late August called The Perils of Revisionist History as part of an ongoing series of, preservation, of presentations rather called The Power of Trial and Triumph. Now, the event's hosts were Angela Saylor, Vice President of Heritage's Fulner Institute, and Alan C. Gelzo, a visiting fellow at Heritage's Simon Center for American Studies. Graybar laid out how Zinn portrayed himself as a truth-teller who was debunking myths about American history using newly uncovered sources. He claimed to be revealing new evidence, everything from Christopher Columbus's diary to a Harper's Magazine article about Japanese internment camps published at the end of World War II, to the Pentagon Papers, she said. But she says, what I discovered in going through Zinn's book is he did no such thing. Instead, according to Graybar, Zinn distorted his sources to fit his narrative, took subject matter out of context, and frequently outright lifted his material from other authors. In terms of Columbus, Graybar said, he mostly copied from passages quoted in a book he plagiarized, a book for high school students written by a fellow Marxist and anti-Vietnam War organizer, who was not a historian, but a novelist by the names of, name of Hans Koning. Columbus's diary was quoted deceptively, she said. Zinn added ellipses to sentences while also clipping out entire sentences or pages to change their meaning. This made Columbus seem ruthless and cruel. But the actual direct passages from Columbus tell a different story. The missing passages, she said, show that Columbus tried to convert the Indians through love, not force, and certainly was not intent on murder or genocide as claimed. Now, Jared Stepman points out it wasn't just the story of Columbus that Zinn distorted. Graybar says he engaged in revisionism about the Vietnam War in much the same way. She says the top-secret documents about Indochina were also quoted deceptively. For example, references to fears about communist imperialism were cut off at the ends of, of sentences by Zinn in order to make it appear that American leaders were motivated by imperialistic greed. She said these weren't just isolated distortions in Zinn's book, yet some have called his work a moral authority on history. So how does Zinn portray himself as a moral authority? Graybar says he does this by presenting himself as the revealer of truth, the champion of the oppressed who finally tells their story. In other words, the the historians who came before him were deceivers, he says. On why Zinn distorted history and his goal in creating false perceptions about America's past, Graybar said, quote, For Zinn, communism is the solution. He acknowledges that Stalin was an authoritarian, but points to the day when the right people will implement communism. In fact, many times local communist governments in Europe, Central America, and Vietnam have attempted to do so, only to be quashed by the American military, according to Zinn. End quote. So Jared Stepman says in Zinn's telling... America is an exceptional country only if one sees it as exceptionally bad. Even the country's greatest triumphs over undisputed evil are questioned, such as the victory over Nazi Germany in World War II. Graybar said of Zinn's narrative, In fact, we did not defeat fascism during World War II, but had its, quote, essential elements, militarism, racism, imperialism, absorbed into our already poisoned bones. In other words, we were no better than the Nazis. 
Now, what Zinn's book does is craft a narrative to fit the ideological points he was trying to make to transform society in its narrative of oppressors versus oppressed and resistance to systematic exploitation. Sounds rather Marxist, wouldn't you say? Graybar also added, quote, This is Howard Zinn's narrative in a people's history of the United States. It is fraudulent history, one that uses bad sources, such as a book by a Holocaust denier, anonymous, anonymous diaries, works of fiction, and mythical speeches. He plagiarizes and quotes deceptively, inequality, oppression, police brutality, racism, sexism, and injustice are presented as the inevitable outcomes of the system or the establishment. In other words, they are baked into the founding and the Constitution. End quote. Now, Graybar noted Zinn was constantly railing against the system in his book. The word system or systemic appears 168 times. The struggle against the system is unending until that system is overthrown. According to Zinn, she said there is no such thing as pure fact innocent of interpretation. Behind all facts are judgments, and that this fact is important, the other facts are not important. And she says Zinn pretended to choose facts about the oppressed that long were overlooked by other historians in his bottom-up retelling of the past, but that's off base. She says the problem is many of the oppressed people used as examples by Zinn are either anonymous mouthpieces spouting communist slogans, dupes, or famous Marxist radicals. So what Zinn ultimately wanted, she said, is an overturning of the system. In Zinn's history, the only glimmer of hope comes from mass protest, and the more violent, the better. Martyrs are heroes. Riots redefine the civil, define rather the civil rights movement. Graybar said for Zinn, voting in elections are not a solution to justice. The entire system is rotten and needs to be torn down. Is any of this sounding familiar? I mean, if you've been following the protests, I mean, this is something Jared Stepman points out. That narrative has become disturbingly relevant in 2020 as cities across the country have been hit with mass protests, violence, and unrest. thought that was really interesting. Zinn died in 2010, by the way, but the violence in the streets today, says Graybar, would have made him very happy. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself. TheBrianHydeShow.com Lots of other fun goodies on that site, including resources for wrong thinkers. If you're considering joining our ranks, which is your choice, by the way, check it out. You'll find some great uh, food for thought. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. Hey, our program is made possible by fantastic sponsors and supporters like yourself. One of our sponsors is the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. I'll have some more kind words to speak on their behalf coming up in just a little bit. You know, we've had a lot of learning opportunities this year. Many of these learning opportunities, of course, are painful ones. That's, I guess, how you know that it's a learning opportunity. So, I don't know. Have you, ever sat, have you sat down yet? Have you have you sat around the campfire with friends or family and said, hmm, what are the lessons we can learn from this year? Because I promise you there have been a lot of them. Ryan McMacken 
I think makes a very powerful case that one of the biggest takeaways that we could learn from this year is it's far too late to think that lockdowns could make COVID-19 go away. Now, notice there's nothing here saying COVID-19 is a hoax. It's all just a figment of our imagination. No, I think it's, it's, it's legitimately a pandemic. But the lockdowns, the response... We've learned a few things in the last seven months that, uh, unfortunately, politicians just will not acknowledge. Authorities will not acknowledge. Why? I suppose they're probably afraid because they know they could be held accountable for the damage that they've caused. There's also the possibility that uh, this is a crisis and there's always power to be consolidated during a crisis. Let's talk specifically about these lockdowns. Ryan McMacken says in the early days of the coronavirus crisis... The rationale given for lockdowns was that it was necessary to stay home for 15 days to slow the spread. The idea was that social distancing was necessary, so hospitals and other health care resources would not be overwhelmed. However, he says by the summer of 2020, whether by design or not, it became common to hear media pundits, politicians, even some scientists, either imply or outright claim social distancing could permanently flatten the curve or otherwise somehow cause a drastic reduction in overall COVID-19 deaths. For example, The Hill's Reed Wilson claimed in July, quote, We know how to stop this virus. It requires social distancing. It requires wearing a mask and constant hand sanitizers and staying home as much as possible. End quote. But Ryan McMacken says this displays a woeful lack of understanding about the purpose and effectiveness of lockdowns. Lockdowns of the sort seen in April and May in this country do nothing at all to stop this virus. The lockdown strategy only works to completely stop a disease if certain conditions can be met. Specifically, the lockdown must be extremely strict and it must be maintained indefinitely, perhaps for years, until a safe and effective vaccine is widely available. Now, Ryan McMacken says clearly the U.S. is nowhere near enforcing a lockdown like this, nor does it appear that a vaccine, certainly not a well-tested one, is imminent. Thus, given that we know lockdowns themselves cause deaths through suicides, drug overdoses, and more, trying to impose a strict lockdown until that day comes would be a high-stakes gamble few would be willing or able to endure. So here's one of the great takeaways. Lockdowns provide only temporary suppression. And for some insightful observers, this has been very clear from the beginning. Ryan McMacken quotes Joseph Ladapo, a professor of medicine at UCLA, who wrote back in April of this year, quote, there is no guarantee of a vaccine within the next 18 months. We've taken measures to slow the virus, but these can't stop it. The only thing that can stop the virus at this advanced stage of community transmission is a complete lockdown, which can happen in authoritarian countries like China, but not in the U.S. He says, are shutdowns enough? No. Despite the efforts, there will still there is still enough human contact to ensure the virus will spread. Take a look at the long list of essential services and exemptions on California's COVID-19 website, for example. He says, shutdowns will cause the virus to spread more slowly, but it will spread nonetheless. He goes on to say, when shutdowns end, the virus will spread and COVID-19 deaths will increase. Without a vaccine and community immunity, often called herd immunity, this outcome is all but guaranteed. 
the only thing that will temporarily quell it in the near term, in sh- short of a miracle treatment, is another shutdown. But he says states will get only one pass at this once lifted. The appetite for a repeat shutdown will be tepid at best, even in left-leaning states. The reality of the shutdown's costs, the upheaval caused by school closures, economic hurt, social isolation, and lost lives and livelihoods will be fresh. Some argue that stopping COVID-19 and protecting the economy are one and the same. And he says, although this is true, it is too late to do either. End quote. Now, Ryan McMacken says not even the most enthusiastic supporters of draconian lockdowns, including Neil Ferguson, author of the infamous and very wrong Imperial College model, thought it possible to eradicate the disease through lockdowns. The Imperial Report refers to lockdowns simply as a method of, quote, temporary suppression. As Ladapo notes, at this stage of the game, it's too late to contain the disease. Without a total lockdown, where so much as a trip to the grocery store is verboten. Moreover, international borders would have to be sealed shut to prevent infected populations from entering the country. Given the success with which governments have controlled the flow of migrants, we can guess about how successful that strategy would be. So when we add this all together, given current realities, social distancing and lockdowns cannot possibly serve any purpose other than to slow down the spread so as to lessen the burden on health care facilities. The only lives saved would be those who otherwise have been denied, would have been denied uh, uh, medical care by an overwhelmed medical system. But that's a relatively small number. And in the developed world, medical systems are, no, are now nowhere near running out of beds. Plus, the lockdowns may not even flatten the curve enough to create any net gain. Ryan McMacken says another round of stay-at-home orders or lockdowns certainly won't make the disease go away. They'll just delay the spread to a future date. Moreover, he says it's debatable how effective lockdowns are at accomplishing even this. In a new working paper for the National Bureau of Economic Research, Andrew Atkison, Karen Kopecki, and Tao Za conclude that we may be past the time where lockdowns make much of a difference to outcomes. It appears countries and regions follow a similar pattern everywhere. Transmission rates are high at first, the study notes, but the growth in the spread of the disease quickly declines after 20 to 30 days. After this, the growth rate of daily deaths in all regions hovered around zero or slightly below. Now, this is regardless of whether or not there are social distancing laws or mask mandates. In other words, it doesn't look like the lockdowns, which now vary widely in their extent and severity, are even changing the shape of the curve anymore. So just a few months out from the initial surge, growth rates in all regions became more and more similar across jurisdictions. Here's what the authors conclude. Quote, given the observation that disease transmission rates have remained low, with relatively low dispersion across locations worldwide for several months as non-pharmaceutical interventions have been lifted, we are concerned that estimates of the effectiveness of NPIs in reducing disease transmission from the earlier period may not be relevant for forecasting the impact of the relaxation of those NPIs in the current period due to some unobserved switch in regime. End quote. So in other words, not only are we well past the time when lockdowns might have flattened the initial surge in transmissions, at this point in the pandemic, it doesn't look like lockdowns would even do much to flatten the curve to the point that we're better off. Ryan McMacken says dogmatic advocates for lockdowns are likely to continue pushing for open-ended mandates until a vaccine is widely available. But he reminds us we're gambling with people's lives. 
How many children must be impoverished? How many jobless men and women must die by suicide or drug overdoses in the meantime? His point being that every day of a lockdown puts more lives in danger. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself at thebrianhideshow.com. I think he has a point worth considering here. I mean, whatever good these lockdowns were supposed to do. 15 days. Which was now, what, 180 days ago? We flattened the curve. When, if ever, are we expecting to get our lives back? That's the question on a lot of our minds right now. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I'd like to invite you to check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com at the bottom of the page. There are a couple of links that I would specifically like to point out to you. One of them is an invitation to subscribe to the podcast. And I do this because I know not everybody's going to be close by their radio when this is airing over the radio or when it's it's airing over the live stream. I, I want you to check it out when you have the time. This is the beauty of podcasting. You can catch, you know, the first first segment of the show on your way to work. Maybe catch the second one on the way home. It's It's totally up to you. But uh, subscribe to the podcast, and I'm going to ask you one other small favor, and that is if you find value, if you find there's, there's encouragement or there's light or truth in the articles that I present or the observations or just what I'm trying to do here, which for those who may not know it, I am trying to help make popular things that are sound, principles of personal liberty, of private property, of free markets, of freedom of conscience. That's my goal. This is a platform where freedom should be spoken and and defended, and that is what I do. And if it's something that you resonate with and you say, yeah, I I am totally about that too, consider becoming a patron and consider becoming a donor. A dollar a month, five dollars a month, whatever, every little bit helps. And I greatly appreciate those of you who have already stepped up and, and are showing your support. Let's talk some more about the lessons learned in 2020. This is going to be a year for the history books. I mean, we're going to look back and be like, wow. <laughs> you lived during 2020? Tell me more, Grandpa. Well, speaking of lessons learned, the aftermath to the official response of 9-11, which we just observed about a week ago, could have been a graduate-level course in how to take advantage of a crisis. You remember what happened? You remember the Patriot Act? You remember the invasion of Afghanistan, the invasion of Iraq? There's a great article on lewrockwell.com today from Helen Bayaniski that points out the new normal that followed those terror attacks should have been a very clear warning for us not to make the same mistake again. But as the current pandemic has unfolded, history appears to be repeating itself. And she's, her article's titled, Nearly Two Decades After 9-11, The Parallels Between Post-Terrorist Attack New Normal and That of COVID-19 Can't Be ignored. Now, if that sounds a bit alarmist, I'm sorry. The the goal here isn't to make you scared or angry. 
But this is one of those unpleasant truths we probably better take a look at now while it's still relatively painless to correct because otherwise it's, it's going to become much more difficult to correct. If you have flown recently, if you've had to go through the uh, tactical tickling, you know, to get on an airline, if you've had to have your, your privates touched or either uh, electronically strip-searched, you know, in order to get on a plane, you know what I'm talking about. Helen Byniski says, Both the 9-11 attacks and the COVID-19 pandemic have dra- dramatically shaped Western society. But she says the changes they wrought were devastating and unnecessary pushed through by control-hungry governments who saw opportunity in crisis. And while both the worst terror attack in U.S. history and the deadliest pandemic in a generation were immediately hyped as the defining elements of the era, the uncomfortable reality is that neither terrorism nor the novel coronavirus pose any more risk than taking a bath. Now you may think, well, how dare she, how dare she you know, just reject that and say that it's not that... Look at the statistics. And I know I'm digressing for a moment, but bear with me. Your likelihood of dying in a terror attack is somewhere below the likelihood of you being struck by lightning as you're celebrating your win of the lottery. It's minuscule. But because of availability bias, because of the way these stories are sensationalized and reported, we tend to think, oh my gosh, it could happen to anyone, anytime, anywhere. As the author points out here, the media hype fueled by think tanks and governments drooling over the possibility of adopting controls that would normally spark popular revolt has created the very same climate of fear that allowed the imposition of the post-9-11 police state, paving the way for a post-COVID regime that will make the Patriot Act look cuddly. These shocking changes to the American way of life that have followed both 9-11 and the pandemic, were in no way required or even logical responses to the crises in question. It took an unlikely series of what the government described as intelligence failures for the events of 9-11 to fall into place. And the Trump administration scrapped completely adequate pandemic response plans to adopt a regime of lockdowns and economic shutdowns that will likely end up doing more harm than the virus itself. Had governments followed their own procedures, Neither catastrophe likely would have happened. But the government incompetence narrative doesn't sell the intrusive surveillance regulations that were yanked off the shelf in both cases to be railroaded through while any potential opposition was paralyzed with fear. She says both the Patriot Act and the worst of the coronavirus regulations in the U.S. and elsewhere were all written long before 9-11 and before the pandemic wheeled out at the appointed hour, and sometimes trialed in the private sector under the reasoning that one must not let a crisis go to waste. By the way, there are great links to the supporting evidence in this article by Helen Byniski. And I would encourage you, check them out. Follow it through. See if she's she's telling you the truth. She says, to further destabilize society, Americans were encouraged in both cases to rat out their fellow citizens to the authorities for perceived offenses, such as checking the wrong books out from the library, that's what it was back in 2001, or failing to social distance, 2020. But even the crises themselves have an awful lot in common. Osama bin Laden was fingered definitively as the culprit for 9-11, even as the towers were smoldering, long before an investigation could have been conducted echoing the immediately ubiquitous media declaration that an infected bat at a Wuhan wet market had spawned coronavirus. 
Well, after it was found, the market didn't actually sell bats. Establishment scientists had to scramble to pin the responsibility for human transmission on an immediate species. Even as studies revealed the earliest cases of COVID-19 had no contact with the market at all. Yet just as Bin Laden and 19 hijackers, some of whom were later found to be inconveniently alive, remain the only official culprits for 9-11, China is still blamed for the pandemic. And Helen Byniski says, for those Americans too dense or stubborn to get the similarities between COVID-19 and 9-11, a flood of articles accompanied the arrival of the virus on U.S. shores. From not even 9-11 could shut down AA meetings, coronavirus is different. As if there'd been no society disrupting disasters in the intervening 18 years capable of disrupting a 12-step meeting. To headlines like imagining a 9-11-like response to the coronavirus. She says the heavy-handed programming has hammered home the new normal supposedly facing the world on the other side of the pandemic. And just as Americans were led to fear endless terror attacks if they did not give up their rights, the entire world is being told we face a pandemic-laden future if we don't mask up, sit down, shut up, roll up our sleeves for an experimental vaccine or two or three. But she says there's no objective reason life should not, in fact, go back to normal. Humanity has lived through much deadlier pandemics, especially as each new revelation reveals that the horrific U.S. COVID-19 statistics have been hugely overinflated. Yet while Wuhan, the virus's apparent origin point, has returned to holding summertime pool parties as its case count cratered, parallel declines in fatalities in the U.S. and U.K. have actually resulted in increased controls. How? Peer pressure, she says, or rather the illusion of it. Those who oppose even the slightest element of the new normal are denounced objectively (laughs) pro-COVID. Just as then-President George W. Bush warned Americans who opposed his draconian post-9-11 crackdown and war in the Middle East that you're with us or you're with the terrorists. The anti-war bans such as the Dixie Chicks got death threats. Those who've embraced the COVID-19 regime are encouraged to wish sickness and death on their neighbors who won't mask up. Helen Byniski says, unfortunately, just as 9-11 was weaponized to launch wars against Afghanistan and Iraq, and later most of the Middle East, the Trump administration seems determined to wrangle a war with China out of COVID-19. Now, she says, even if this doesn't come to pass, the relationship between the two countries has deteriorated markedly. And a second Cold War seems inevitable. Meanwhile, the devastation wrought by the suicidal new normal carries on at home, laying waste to what was left of Americans' rights after the Patriot Act was through with them and threatening to do the same. And she says, can we stop repeating history for once? I tend to agree. Again, this is from Helen Byniski. You'll find it in the show notes for September 16th, 2020 on thebrianhydeshow.com. When we come back... We're going to talk about uh, a federal judge in Pennsylvania making official what many of us already had suspected. Stay-at-home orders and mandatory business closures are blatantly unconstitutional. Okay, someone in an official capacity has now spoken and said, yeah, that's the case. Now the question is, what are we going to do about it? Got a great essay from Stacy Rudin. We'll talk about how and why we shouldn't allow elected and unelected officials, officials rather, get away with exceeding their legitimate authority. We'll be back right after this.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. So I guess you probably heard the good news. I talked about this yesterday with Eric Peters. A federal judge in Pennsylvania has made official what a lot of us already understood, and that is that uh, many of these uh, extra legislative declarations have, uh, have been declared unconstitutional or are unconstitutional. And there's a great article from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is by Stacy Rudin. Federal court holds stay-at-home orders and mandatory business closures unconstitutional. She says for six months, Americans in 43 states have lived under unprecedented executive orders restricting freedoms as basic as whether they can work, leave their homes, and expose their faces in public. Now, here's the takeaway. This, If you think of nothing else, remember this. These mandates are not duly enacted laws. They are orders issued by one of the three branches of government. They constitute a system of one-person rule, something none of us expected could ever happen in the United States. And no one, apart from the 43 newfound state dictators, is sure when it will expire. She says, after six months of this, a federal court, a Pennsylvania federal court in Butler County versus Wolf. Governor Wolf, being the governor of Pennsylvania, reviewed the indefinite emergency restrictions imposed by the executive branch of Pennsylvania government, declaring limitations on gathering size, stay-at-home orders, and mandatory business closures unconstitutional. Refusing to accept the alleged need for a new normal, the court stated that an independent judiciary is needed to serve as a check on the exercise of emergency government power. As Stacey Rudin says, about time, the judicial branch is coming to save us. Now, she reminds us in this article, the judicial branch exists to check executive authority, even in time of emergency. And she quotes Abraham Lincoln to this end. One of the great violators, by the way, of executive authority. But Lincoln once said, our safety, our liberty depends upon preserving the Constitution of the United States as our fathers made it inviolate. The people of the United States are the rightful masters of both Congress and the courts, not to overthrow the Constitution, but to overthrow the men who pervert the Constitution. Something tells me he said this prior to 1860, just just a hunch. Stacey Rudin says, in 2020, sad to say, there are numerous governors across this nation who have perverted the Constitution. New Jersey's Phil Murphy even declared its interpretation above his pay grade with unprecedented orders restricting Americans' rights to peaceably assemble, practice their religions, earn a living, travel freely, engage in commerce, or even manage their own health and exposure to risk. While global pandemics pose challenges for governors, particularly when the population is panicked by a hysterical mass media, entire populations cannot be indefinitely subjected to liberty and deprived of fundamental rights and liberties. As the court said in this ruling earlier this week, there is no question that our founders abhorred the concept of one-person rule. They decried government by fiat. Absent a robust system of checks and balances, the guarantees of liberty set forth in the Constitution are just ink on parchment. End quote. And Stacey Rudin says we can't allow our freedom to become ink on parchment. Many governors seek to do just that. They won't even designate an endpoint to their emergency powers. When does the emergency, in quotation marks, end? 
Well, this should be easy to say. X number of deaths per million. X number of deaths over X number of weeks. But they won't say it. They want us to live under the constant threat of house arrest and livelihood deprivation, even though all we ever agreed to was a two-week effort to flatten the curve. We never agreed to an indefinite or permanent new normal or to do whatever our wise governor dreams up and declares necessary to eliminate infections. And again, quoting from the judge, in times of crisis, even a vigilant public may let down its guard over its constitutional liberties, only to find that liberties once relinquished are hard to recoup and that restrictions, while expedient in the face of an emergency situation, may persist long after immediate danger has passed, end quote. And to this she says, thank you, Judge Stickman, for recognizing our predicament and for taking the first step toward restoring our freedom today by reminding those with authoritarian leanings that governors cannot be given carte blanche to disregard the Constitution for as long as the medical problem persists. The response to an emergency can't undermine our system of constitutional liberties or the system of checks and balances that protects those liberties. Now, there's much more to this article. I would encourage you to check it out for yourself. She talks about how stay-at-home orders are so draconian as to be presumptively unconstitutional. This is something else that the judge found. She talks about mandatory business closures that violate the 14th Amendment's guarantee that every citizen may support himself in an occupation of his choosing. The bottom line is this. She says, orders like Judge Stickman's remind the American people that they are not actually legally governed by 50 individual dictators, each empowered to declare at whim unlimited emergencies restricting basic unalienable rights. No, she says, we are not that. We are a government by the people, for the people, and of the people. And she says, we must, we will work together using the courts to ensure that our elected officials never again forget this fact. Check out the entire article. It's it's terrific. It is so well done. And it's probably worth sharing if you have friends who are, you know, sincerely seeking a little bit better understanding. I want to shift to one more. This is from John Tamney. The headline grabbed me, Are Lockdowns an Election Year Ransom Note? Now, I don't know about you, but but that's the perception that I have as well. In the, as the election gets clearer, there seems to be an undeniable sense that a lot of the current COVID-19 response is being used as a form of political leverage against the voters or against the citizenry. It's like we're being told, we'll see about relaxing these restrictions once the election is over. Now, I don't mean to sound too craven or too uh, cynical here, but doesn't that sound like a politician who's terrified about being held accountable for the harm that he or she has caused? Yeah, once we get through the election, then we'll see uh, where we stand on these restrictions. In other words, uh, do what I say, and we'll maybe we'll see about uh, relaxing them. This is the equivalent of the parent saying, yeah, okay, we'll do it sometime. <laughs> hey, Dad, when are we going to go for a wheeling? Right, well, uh, well, we'll do it later. They want to put it off because they're terrified. They're going to be held accountable. Maybe they should be terrified of that. John Tamley, John Tamney, rather, as the words of a West Coast, Coast health director to start out his column, he said, and it says, we don't realistically anticipate that we would be moving to either Tier 2 or reopening K-12 through schools until at least after the election in early November. Again, these are the words of a West Coast health director 
And John Tamney says, no in-person schooling until after the election? Hmm. Please think about what was said. He says it reads as a kind of ransom note. Vote for science reverent candidate Joe Biden or else. Really, he says, what else could that utterance mean? What does November 3rd have to do with reopening the schools? Why would it be safer to open on the 4th of November versus the present? Unless the implicit point is that Corona reverence is far more political than the believers have previously felt comfortable admitting. And if so, what's happening borders on child abuse. Kids will be held hostage by an election. John Tamney says, think about what this means. For one, not every parent can afford a babysitter. More than some want to acknowledge there's a daycare quality to schooling. And when school isn't in person, parents without the means to hire babysitters either have to reduce their work hours, leave their kids without supervision, or quit work altogether. But he says, daycare aside, what about the kids? Well, there's an argument that the learning aspect of education is a tad overstated. Does anyone think virtual learning will be very effective with kids? For the adult readers done with school, think about how attentive you were on substitute teacher days. Does anyone else think a lot of learning is happening remotely? What about the kids with disabilities? How can they be instructed effectively via Zoom? He says, is the point that public school teachers don't feel safe? If so, isn't the right answer to give those uncomfortable returning to work an out? as opposed to discontinuing in-person schooling altogether. Of course, he says if teachers don't feel safe, a not unreasonable question is why they don't. It's not unreasonable to ask simply because retailer Target recently reported its strongest quarterly sales growth in decades. Target was, quote, allowed to remain open during the lockdowns. And while the political picking of winners and losers brings new meaning to reprehensible, the fact remains that Target has done very well amid the economic contraction forced on us by witless politicians. Translated more clearly, Target stores have at times been very crowded. So have Walmarts, Safeways, Ralph's, Whole Foods, etc. So this raises the question about why the continued limits placed on people. Schools, businesses, they've never made sense in consideration of how thankfully rare death or even serious illness has been as a consequence of the virus, especially in recent weeks. Unless it's always been political, as in the most actively corona-reverent have been stoking ongoing virus fear as a veiled ransom note. And if so, those who would mess with people, schools, and businesses for political reasons are truly the sick ones. So says John Tamney. This is The Brian Hyde Show.